Welcome in to the Wednesday Bible Study. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, my name is Rick Burgess, in case this is your first time to be with us, uh, co-host of the Rick and Bubba Show and director of themanchurch.com, uh, and thanking you for being with us today. We are studying a brand new series today. Uh, we're, we're in uh, part five of a new series. Uh, this is from the book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. And really the premise um, that uh, J.I. Packer is unpacking is that we must be very careful that our pursuit of knowledge concerning God is not the wrong pursuit. Uh, it can't just be to know about God. Uh, scripturally, it should be to know God. And we've talked about that quite a bit. God desires that we know Him. He has not hid Himself from us. Uh, and this is uh, you know, one of, the, one of the, the biggest you know, assets we've been given, uh, the, uh, the biggest tools that we've been given to use to know God is His revelation about himself in the Holy Word of God. Uh, and so, as we've said in the Wednesday Bible study, my wife and I were talking about this last night, uh, you know, always be leery of any Bible study that doesn't feature the Bible. Uh, and I was telling her that we talked about that for years here in this Wednesday Bible study. So we will dive into the Word of God today. A couple of announcements, themanchurch.com. We're getting ever closer uh, to launching uh, the new curriculum for this year. There'll be another 40-week curriculum coming out based on, the, uh, based on eight men of the Bible. Our first curriculum is the pursuit of Christ-centered masculinity. Uh, there's a, a 112, 113 churches that are doing it in some way, shape, or form, and they're all at different places. Some have completed it. Some are almost finished. Some are just getting started. But there'll be a new curriculum coming out from themanchurch.com, which is a resource to implement men's ministry in your church or in your community. We're here to provide those resources for you, uh, to provide teachers and speakers for you, whatever you may need. Uh, to have a uh, you know, never-ending, ongoing, productive men's ministry strategy, we're always here to help. We'll be out helping uh, tomorrow night if you're watching this uh, and uh, you're watching it or listening to it the day that it actually took place, which is um, uh, on Wednesday, and I'm trying to remember what the date is today, the 20th, right? Today's the 20th. So if you're listening or watching on the 20th, uh, the 21st, I'll be in Leeds, Alabama at First Baptist Church Leeds for a men's gathering and. They'll be plugging men into small groups. I'll go to America's Georgia on Friday with Johnny Hunt, a uh, men's steak dinner. And again, we'll be uh, trying to challenge those men. Looking forward to being with Johnny. But you can go to BurgessMinistries.com. And because of some of the COVID restrictions and some of the spacing, uh, you may see some of the dates coming on, then going away. We've had some that have canceled and moved it to next year. Uh, new dates that are coming up. So if you want to know where we are going to be and if we're going to be near you and your community, uh, then go to BurgessMinistries.com uh, and check uh, the upcoming events and you can find everything that you need. Also, if you need a resource, uh, we have a brand new resource that uh, just came out uh, in our How to Be a Man series. These are those 40-day devotionals uh, for individual men or if you want to use it with your children or get a group together to walk through our 40-day devotionals, you can. We have a number of those resources available at TheManChurch.com. Our new one in the How to Be a Man series, I was fortunate enough to be invited to, to write some of it uh, along with seven other uh, of the, uh, the, the men who write our curriculum and write our study guides all joined together. Uh, each one of us took five days on the topic of discipleship. Uh, what, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does that look like? What is discipleship? And, and this is a 40-day devotional uh, that takes on the different aspects of discipleship, five days on each of those eight aspects. So we'll open in a word of prayer. Uh, you can get that, by the way, by going to themanchurch.com. Uh, let's jump into a word of prayer and get started. Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. 
help us in this pursuit uh, that, uh, that J.I. Packer, inspired by you, called us uh, uh, to notice in Scripture that you have said clearly that it is your desire that we know you, not just know about you, but to know you. Uh, help our pursuit to know more about your holy word, not to be to have the right an- not not just to have the right answers to questions, but to truly know you. And Lord, today we we just pursue you with all we have. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So let's uh, let's take uh, chapter five in the book of J.I. Packer. Uh, it's called God God Incarnate, and I and I will tell you that this um, when I dove into this, and I don't know that we can get through all of it in an hour today. We may be able to. Uh, if not, I'll, I'll find a good stopping point, and we'll finish session five next week because this is a pretty deep topic, uh, and it's talking about that uh, we have to understand if we understand the gospel. And I, I was, I, I have been a person who concentrates mainly on the resurrection. Uh, you know, it, we, we Paul even said we're to be pitied above everyone if the resurrection didn't happen. And but but there's all kinds of people that say, well. Someone could not raise themselves from the dead. Now, we believe there's a ton of evidence out there that shows that, that this, this person, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, was crucified uh, by the Romans, uh, and, uh, and there were over 500 people who said they saw him after the resurrection, including uh, you know, the, the men who were with him uh, who were inspired to write down the things that they saw. Uh, but... There's aspects of the gospel that people question all the time, and what J.I. Packer takes on in, in, in this session 5 or chapter 5, uh, he says, How can the death of Jesus of Nazareth on a Roman cross put away the sins of the world? How can this have any bearing uh, even on our sins of today? If this happened, you know, what about the resurrection? What about the virgin birth? And there are people that say none of these things uh, ever happened. Uh, so he starts out in chapter 5 by saying, It's no wonder that thoughtful people find the gospel of Jesus Christ hard to believe, for the realities in, in which it deals pass our understanding. But it's sad that so many make faith harder than it needs to be by finding difficulties in the wrong places. And we just named them. They want to find difficulty in the resurrection. They want to find difficulty uh, in the gospel miracles. They want to find difficulty in the virgin birth. And but as 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 J. I. Packer, which kind of blew my mind, it, he he almost tells us in this chapter, you're overthinking it. You're, you're overthinking it. You need to come on back to what we celebrate on Christmas, because if you get Christmas right, the rest of it isn't any big deal. If God truly became a man, and the person of Jesus was 100% man, but more importantly, 100% God then miracles are no big deal, a resurrection is no big deal, and a virgin birth is no big deal. you you got to start as that, as the, that at the foundation, and then the other things are not so hard to grasp at all. Uh, and, and, you know, the, I mean, we even have, you realize this, Thomas Jefferson, uh, had, he could not get past the miracles uh, of the Bible, so he, he, he does a version of the Bible, he takes the miracles out. See, and that's the problem. If you don't, if you don't put the 100% God part, 100% God, 100% man, if we don't get that right, uh, then, then how about Jesus isn't, he isn't the death that needed to be paid for our sin. You know, it talks about that, that, that Jesus became the full amount that was due. Well, he's not the full amount that's due if he's, 
if he's not 100% God and 100% man. So be careful of any of these so-called religions or even, I think for some of us, when we see another religion, we think, okay, we understand that y'all think Jesus was just a man or a good teacher or maybe even a prophet. But where it gets a little dicey is when you get into these forms of, of that claim they're Christianity, but they're just another denomination, but they got problems with this too of God incarnate. Anybody that starts messing with that, you got problems. Uh, and we know Jehovah Witnesses mess with that. Uh, Mormons ha have some theology that's tricky when it comes to the deity uh, of Jesus Christ. And you got to be very, very careful of those things because if you, he's not lesser, uh, lesser God. You know, trying to understand the Trinity, I know, can be complicated, but we can never get to the point that because God became a man uh, and, and, and used the Son, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, that the second person of the triune God goes now to take on human flesh. Don't, don't you let yourself think that means that he became lesser to the Father because Scripture will, will, totally goes against that. So none of this really... Uh, the, none of the issues with this, uh, you know, lie with what these people are saying. It really lies on the claim that Jesus of Nazareth was God made a man. The second person of the God uh, had became, remember, like uh, Paul talks to it, to the church at Corinth, write down this, 1 Corinthians 15, 47. Uh, you, you see that, uh, that Paul refers to Jesus as the second man. Now be careful because that's what he's talking about here. Our problem started with the first man that was ever made, Adam. So we had a real issue because Adam allowed sin to come in to his marriage. He allowed sin to come into the garden. He decided, uh, uh, along with his wife, that they would not obey the, the very few things that God said not to do. Of course, we know that. And they did it. So then we have a fall of mankind. So now the first man that was ever made is not our example. So what we needed was a second man who would now be the perfect man that says, I, first of all, I'm going to come to redeem the problems caused by the first man, but I'm also going to take on human flesh, and I'm going to allow myself to experience what it's like to be a human being while still being 100% God. So now our focus is on the second man, as he said to the church at Corinth, or the new Adam is another uh, way that we describe Jesus who's now the perfect example of how to be a man. TheManChurch.com, our whole concept with the curriculums that we, the first ones that we put out, is if everybody's out here trying to tell you how to be a man, the only place you can look that is, that is, that's flawless is when God became one. But he did not cease to be God, even though he became man. This is all very important, the God-man. And what did we say? You can go back to through BurgessMinistries.com. If, if you click on Listen, you can go through all of the Bible studies that we have ever recorded over the last five, six years in here, and you'll find a study on the Gospel of John word by word over 33 weeks. And really, the Gospel of John, and I've got to turn to, to that now in my Bible because we're going to reference some of it. The Gospel of John, all the Gospels have a very specific role, and the Gospel of John says, Behold the God-man. Behold 100% man and 100% God, and that's what he did, and we unpack that uh, quite a bit uh, throughout the Gospel of John because it is everywhere. So let's talk about the greatest mystery 
Um, and, and what Packer wants us to do, he wants us to focus that if we get the baby right, that that baby was God who took on human flesh, the rest of these, these things are, are not hard to believe or understand at all. He says, here's two mysteries for the price of one, the plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of the Godhead. Of course, that's the Trinity. Uh, and manhood in the person of Jesus. It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. Uh, if you have uh, your Bible or something with your Bible on it, go to John 1.14, uh, chapter 1, verse 14. God became man. The Word became flesh. The divi divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed, needing to be changed, needing to be taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. And now the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. This is a real stumbling block in Christianity. It is here that uh, Jews, Muslims, uh, you know, you, 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 what are they called? The Unitarians and the, and the Jehovah Witnesses. Many of those who feel the difficulties concerning the virgin birth, the miracles, the atonement, and the resurrection have come to grief. It is from misbelief, or at least inadequate belief, about the incarnation that, 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 that gives them difficulty, and that gives them difficulty in all the other points in the gospel story. But once the incarnation is grasped as a reality, then all these other difficulties dissolve. It's no big deal for 100% God to do the miracles that he did. It's no big deal for 100% God to raise himself from the dead. It's no big deal uh, for 100% God to be born of a virgin. So once we get that right, it, it, it kind of it changes a lot of that. And then he goes into a, a second part, who is this child? The cruelty of the birth is important, and we love to land there. Hey, they had to go into a manger, and hey, the baby had to be laid in a, in a feeding trough. And there's nothing wrong with that. The, really only, the most important thing, though, is that the baby being born in Bethlehem fulfilled prophecy, but but and that's 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 where the location is important. But but we get sometimes too hung up in the romanticizing the story, and then we forget that the focus is the baby and the baby's identity, because if you if you're not careful with that, uh, it just becomes this this incredible story of a of a you know a man who's taking on a woman. Uh, as his wife, who everybody thought had been unfaithful to him. All that's important. And hey, they couldn't find any place at the end because nobody wanted some woman who's about to give birth to come into one of the rooms and mess the sheets up, uh, even if they had availability. So they put them out in a, in, in a stable, really more like a cave where, where animals were. All that is certainly fine, but if you get caught up in all that and you miss the focus of the identity of the baby, then you've missed it. You know, the shepherds weren't being told, you won't believe this wonderful story about this man and this woman that, that have some baby out in the barn. No, angels don't appear to talk about a baby in the barn. They appear to talk about God has become a man, and this is now going to start the process for mankind to be at peace with a holy God 
And this is why the celebration up here in the sky with a multitude of angels is taking place, not because of some romantic story about a baby that nobody would let be born inside a hotel. It, that's not the story. The story is God has come to us and taken on human flesh. The baby was God. Now, this is important. If you go to the Gospel of John, um, I, I told you, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the beginning with God. This is in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, first few verses. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. We're talking about, John does not say, because this was believed in a lot of the pagan beliefs and some of the spiritual beliefs, uh, even in some of the Jewish beliefs. He was not a son of God. That's really, really important. Watch for that with some of these false denominations and religions that pretend to be something. And, and, and if you hear them talking about, well, Jesus was a son of God, but, I mean, he has a brother or uh, there's, these, there's these other people or he was a prophet and did miracles, but there were other prophets. No, no. The Gospel of John makes it extremely clear, and if we want to know God correctly, Jesus was not a Son of God. He was the Son of God. Underline that. He was the Son of God. Uh, the, not a Son, the Son, the only begotten Son. Uh, let's go down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh. This is in the Gospel of John chapter 1. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Praise God for that. And he's talking about that, he, that John the Baptist bore witness to him. Let's go down to 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I mean, this is God. Of course, we, all, we know what John 3.16 calls him. Not a begotten son, the begotten son. And uh, we also know in, in chapter 3, not just in verse 16, uh, that we all know pretty well, but look at verse 18 as well. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Period. So, so J.I. Packer is saying, Let's not just gloss over this story of the baby because it's big. Because once we get that right and we realize this, there's not two gods, this is not a lesser God, this is God, and John clarifies this, that they might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing have life in his name. That's in John 20, 31. We have life in his name. John clarifies uh, that throughout his entire gospel, Jesus is the God-man. John 1, 1 through 18, he lays all this out. We've read parts of it. He knows simply the Son of God could be confused with other claims of sons of God. And that's why John is saying, let me clarify. I'm not talking about sons of God. I'm not talking about a son of God. I'm talking about the Son of God. So remember, this, uh, let's look at page 56 if you've got the J.I. Packer book. If not, just stay with me and we'll talk about some of the scriptures. So there was, there was no danger of being misunderstood when John is writing to the Jewish people who understood the Old Testament. 
because the Old Testament readers would pick up the reference at once, God, uh, once about him saying he is, he's the Word, and the Word uh, was with God, and the Word was God. God's Word in the Old Testament is the creative utterance of his power in action, fulfilling his purpose. The Old Testament depicted God's utterance, the actual statement of his purpose, as having power in itself to the effect the thing purposed. Genesis 1 tells us how creation was done. God said, let there be, and, and of course there was, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made. Uh, you find this in Psalms 33, verses 6 and 9. Psalms 33, verse 6 and 9. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. He spoke and it came to be. The word of God is thus God at work. John takes up this figure and proceeds to tell us seven things about the divine word. So why, that's why it's important. John is using this analogy because he knows that most of the people he's talking to will get it. You remember, John's trying to convince these Jewish people, this is him, this is Messiah. So the picking of, 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 of the analogy of the word is, is important to those that were hearing this that were already well-versed with the Old Testament. The, the Number one of the seven things about the divine word, in the beginning was the word, and this is John talking about this in, in one one. He here is the word's eternity. It has no beginning of its own. When other things begin, he was. You remember when everybody went, I mean, everybody went crazy when he's talking to all these Pharisees and, and he's talking to these men that know this, and he says, you know, how did you know Abraham? You're 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 not even you're not even uh, you're 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 not even 34, 35 years old. How do you know Abraham? And he looks at me and says, before Abraham, I was. And remember, they just went crazy. And they're like, you can't say that. Well, John's saying, in the beginning was the Word. So first of all, this analogy of the Word is Jesus has always been. The Son has always been there. He is part of the triune God, and he has been before the foundation of the earth. Number two, and the Word was with God. We're still in verse 1 of chapter 1. Here it is the Word's personality. The power that fulfills God's purposes is the power of a distinct personal being, one who stands in an eternal relation to God of active fellowship. That, that's what this phrase means. The word is eternal. The word's personality is that it fellowships in, in part of the triune God. He and the Father are one. Number three, and the word was God. So, in the beginning uh, was the Word, that's its eternity, and the Word was with God, that's the personality and fellowship of, of, of Jesus and the Father. And then he says, and the Word was God, and here are the words, uh, hey, it's, it's deity. Jesus is God. Through, through, I mean, it's, it's, he, the personality may be distinct from the Father, but he has not been created by the Father. He is divine in himself as the Father is. This is a, this is a mystery. With, and it confronts us, and it's a mystery of personal distinctions within the unity of the Godhead. And I think that's where we all struggle sometimes. They're equal, but they're, they're distinct personalities, but they're one God. Adrian Rogers, I'll say it again. He says, if you try to completely comprehend the triune God and the Trinity, if you, complete, if you take your finite brain and you try to grab the, the, the Trinity in its fullness, you may lose your mind. But if you reject the Trinity, you will lose your salvation. So, so it's important, and some of this we just accept that, that, that that's it. What does God also tell us? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. 
unpacking the Trinity is one of those places where I say, well, yes, you are right, Lord. Uh, you, you, I, I can't comprehend everything about you, but you know what? I believe it to be true because I've seen the power of it in my own life. Number four about the word. Through him all things were made. Here the word is creating. He was the Father's agent in every act of making that the Father has ever performed. All that was made was made through him. By the way, this, this, that, that's a biggie. So uh, first of all, John says the word's eternal. Uh, the, the, the word is fellowshipping with the Father. The word is deity. And the word was, was, was the agent that the Father used to create everything he ever made. Number five, and this is our big one. This is a big one. In him was life. Here the word is animating. There is no physical life in the realm of created things except in him and through him. Here the Bible answers to the problem of the origin and the continuance of life in all forms. Life is given and life is maintained by the word. Created things do not have life in themselves, but life is in the word. The second person of the Godhead what does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, I am the life, I am the truth. And no one comes to the Father except through me. In, Jesus is life. In him all things exist. Life was literally breathed into to everything by God the Father and his agent to do that was God the Son. Number six. And that life was the light of men. We're in verse 4 now in these last two we went to birth. Uh, number 4 was the first three. Number 5 and 6 are from verse 4. And the life was the light of men. Here the word is revealing. It, it is giving life. He gives light too. That is to say all people receive imitations of God. For, uh, uh, um, I mean, uh, I mean they're, they're, you have an intimacy with God, I should say, not imitations, from the very fact of being alive in God's world. And this no less... Uh, then the fact that, that they are alive is due to the work of the Word. So he's saying I, he's also light. He shines light into the darkness. He illuminates. Um, uh, we, we, we all uh, can, 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 can be part uh, in fellowship with God because now the light illuminates the sin in our lives and then pays for the very sin in which it illuminates. <laughs> Anybody taking notes? My goodness. I told you it was a deep dive today. But it's important. Okay, number seven. And this is the part, again, back to the birth. And this is in uh, uh, verse 14. The Word became flesh. Number seven. So the Word became flesh. Here is the Word's incarnate. The baby in the manger at Bethlehem was none other than the eternal Word of God. Number one, the Word is eternal. Number two, the Word has a personality and is with God and fellowships with God the Father. The Word was God. It has deity. Uh, through Him all things were made. It was the agent of creation. In Him was life. There is no life in anything without the Word, without Jesus. And, and number six, the Word was the light of men. Here it's revealing. It, it, it's giving life. It gives light to. Uh, all people can come into an intimate relationship with God because of the illumination of of the word. In seven, it became flesh. It became 100% man. It was God incarnate. So now, having shown us who and what the word is, the divine person, author of all things, John indicates an identification. The word, he tells us, uh, was revealed by the incarnation to be God's son. We have seen his glory, 
the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. This is John talking again in verse 14 of chapter 1. The identification is confirmed in verse 18, as we said a minute ago, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. That's the King James Version really lays that down. Thus, John establishes the point at which he was aiming throughout his entire gospel. He's now made it clear what, it, what is meant by calling Jesus the Son of God. The Son of God is the Word of God. We see what the Word is, that is, what the Son is. Such is the message of the prologue of the Gospel of John. Now, when, therefore, the Bible proclaims Jesus as the Son of God, the statement is meant as an assertion of his distinct personal deity. Have we got it? So that's a lot to take in, but it's only half the story. Uh, And you're going, Rick, and we're halfway there. So uh, if if we can't get the rest of it in, I'll finish next week. So let's start on on the rest of the story. Uh, And and this starts with this. The baby born at Bethlehem was was God-made man. Uh, The Word had become flesh, a real human baby, but it had not ceased to be God. He was no less God than before, but but he had begun to be a man. He was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. Let's, I mean, let's think about that for a minute. God who made man would now learn what it felt like to be a man. He, you know, he, he you know, he who made an angel, you know, I hear people say this all the time, well, I just don't understand why God created uh, the devil. Well, he didn't. God created Lucifer. He created an angel who became the devil. And now God has decided, even though he knows that Lucifer has now become the accuser, the tempter, the devil, he allowed himself to, to, to relate with us, to take on human flesh. And now that he's taken on human flesh, this, this same rebel that went against him that he created, he's now allowing himself to be tempted by the accuser because that's, that's us. He knows we're out there, so he takes on human flesh and allows himself to be tempted, which really, to me, is mind-blowing. Listen, here's what uh, the writer of Hebrews said um, in uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 2. Write this down, 17 and 18. And then the writer of Hebrews also talks about this in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. So if you have your Bible, let's, let's turn to that. So in the book of Hebrews, the reason why this is so profound, that this doesn't make you love God, I don't know what will. So here's a holy God that could have said, y'all sinned against me, you're done. I, I, there, there is a chasm between us now, and you're finished. But, but he didn't. He came to us, and we could not come to him. And in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses 17 and 18, listen to what he says. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers, talking about the apostles, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, because he will now pay what is due for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Does, does it, so, so there's nothing that you... Now, this is, this is the great I am. This is the beginning and the end. 
and he decides that he will take on human flesh where now me, a human being, who's also flesh and spirit, but my spirit had to be redeemed because I am full of sin. But then you know what? I go to Jesus. I say, Jesus, you don't know what I'm going through. You know what he says? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> I know exactly what you're going through. I know what it's like to be tempted. I took on human flesh so I, could, so I would relate to, to humanity that I created, but I took on human flesh. I mean, it, it goes back to uh, Paul Harvey. I'll never forget the, the story of the man and the birds. This was this daddy that wouldn't go to church with his family, and I'll, I'll do a quick version of it because I used to play it when I first started out in AM radio, playing Paul Harvey and the rest of the story. And then every and every Christmas, Paul Harvey would do the man and the birds, and Paul Harvey would say this man could not believe that God would be a man, and it drove him crazy. He thought his family was crazy for believing something so so. He thought it was lunacy. They're going to church on Christmas Eve. He won't go. It's cold outside. It's going to freeze. There's snow on the ground. And, and, um, and he, he looks outside after they've gone to church and they would walk to church. It was in, in just an old country town. And he's at the house and he looks outside and he sees uh, that, uh, that, one, that, that, that it's going to freeze this night. And they had uh, their dog put inside, uh, I mean, these birds that they had inside the barn. And he said he looks out and the birds have gotten out and they're flopping around out in the snow. And he goes out there to try to help them. And he, every time he tried to help them, they would scatter and run everywhere. And all he's trying to do is get them in the barn to keep them warm so they won't freeze to death because, because now they're on the ground and they had fallen out of the nest. And all of a sudden, the man's standing out there and he says, my goodness, I wish I could just be a bird. If I could be a bird, I could lead them to where they need to go. And he said it clicked with him. And he heard off in the distance the church bells. And he thought, well, that's why God became a man. So, so we can't say you can't relate to us. We don't, you don't understand. No, I know exactly what it is, and now I can become 100% uh, God and 100% man where I can show you how to be a man, and I can lead you to safety when I go and pay the, pay the price for you on the cross. Somebody say amen to that. So, so anyway, um, this is, let's look at the next one in chapter 4 of Hebrews, and let's look at 15 and 16. Chapter 4 of Hebrews in 15 and 16 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Ah, isn't that great? Isn't that great? So the second thing that we want to think about and before we, before we wrap up today, and we may make it, it's going to be close, is, um, is that when we look at the incarnation, we think to ourselves, God came here and he took on this human flesh to die. He, he, he was born to die. How are we to think of this incarnation? He who had always been God by nature, writes Paul, did not cling to his privileges as God's equal, but stripped himself of every advantage by consenting to be a slave by nature and being born of man. And plainly seen as a human being, he humbled himself by living a life of utter obedience to the point of death. And the death he died was a death of a common criminal, even on a cross. And all this was for our salvation. 
Write this down. That's a beautiful, beautiful writing from the Apostle Paul from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And I remember the first time I saw that, read that, when I first started, my, started to being discipled and being sanctified, I didn't understand it. But what Paul was saying is he, he is equal with God, so he could have claimed equality with God and said, I'm not going down there and taking on human flesh. I'm equal. I'm, I'm part of the triune God. But he stripped himself of, 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 of his, his ability and came down. I mean, he had every right to say, I'm, not, I, I'm God. But he stripped himself of that, and, and he humbled himself by living a life of utter obedience as a human being and at the same time God. And here goes God who is holy and flawless, and he, he, he humbled himself to, to the nastiness of being crucified the way they would crucify a common criminal on the cross, all because the debt would be paid for you and me. It was all for salvation. There have been some theologians who have sometimes toyed with the idea that the incarnation was originally and basically intended for the perfecting of the created order and that its redemptive significance was, so to speak, God's afterthought. But uh, that, that will not stand up. Um, this is the kenosis theory. This will not step up, stand up against scrutiny of the Scriptures. Uh, as James Denny rightly insisted, the New Testament knows nothing of an incarnation which can be defined apart from the realization to atonement, uh, to the relation to the atonement. Not Bethlehem, but Calvary is the focus of Revelation, and any construction of Christianity which ignores or denies this distorts Christianity by putting it out of focus. This is from the book that he wrote called The Death of Christ in 1902. So the key text in the New Testament for in, interpreting the incarnation is not, therefore, a bare statement. In John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Rather, the more comprehensive statement of 2 Corinthians 8.9, write that down, 2 Corinthians 8.9, where Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty might become rich. Here is stated not the fact of incarnation only, but also its meaning, that ta the taking of manhood by the Son is set before us in a way which shows us how we should ever view it. Not simply as a marvel of nature, meaning this was a miracle that God became a man, but rather, and this is good, underline this, not a marvel miracle that God became a man to truly understand why God did this is a wonder of grace. Not a marvel, but a wonder of grace. And so we go on to discuss this, um, uh, you know, where, where people start thinking that um, there, there's something that, that happened uh, that, that somehow God became less than God in order uh, to pull this off. And, and um, Paul destroys this whole kenosis theory that he was somehow less God when, when he says that he did empty himself of, of deity but not of the divine glory and dignity he had before the world began. So, so he did empty himself at times, we see this, about becoming poor and and not claiming what he actually was, but giving up some of the things that he had been given. Uh, but, but he became poor uh, in, in order to humble himself to do what needs to be done. 
And and yes, uh, he, he was he was he was still one hundred percent God. And and but at the same time, he did give up his glory and he did give up his dignity. But he did not empty himself of his deity. But his dignity and his glory, yes, he did. Not his deity, but his dignity and his glory, he did. And one thing I think that we should all take away from this is that we should have the same attitude. I, I think sometimes some of us, some people don't come to know Christ because we're not willing to get our hands dirty. I mean, I will say this, and I've been as guilty of it as anyone because we live in, uh, our standard of living where we live is so high. Sometimes the easiest thing for an American Christian to do is simply write a check. Hey, here's my check. Uh, I don't want to get dirty. I don't want to go to some place that stinks. Uh, drug addicts? Uh, I don't know about going down there. Oh, they have homeless people they're taking care of? Can I just send a check and somebody else deal with that? Well, see, that's not the attitude that our Lord and Savior took at all. He said, I will not give up my deity because I must be the I must pay what's due for sin by being 100% man and 100% God. But Paul says he did empty himself of his glory and his dignity to lower himself. I mean, the king of kings and the Lord of lords now has nowhere to sleep. And he did this to come to us when we could not come to him. In fact, the gospel narratives present evidence against the the kenosis theory. It's true that Jesus' knowledge of things both human and divine was sometimes limited. We did see this. But he's not giving up deity. He asked occasionally for information. Who touched my clothes? How many loaves do you have? Uh, We find this in the Gospels. Mark 30 talks about this in chapter 5 and also Mark 6 and 38. He declares that he shares the ignorance of the angels as as to the day appointed for his return. We see this in Matthew 24. We see it in Mark 13 where Jesus says, I don't know, only the Father knows. So you do see him limiting his, his, his glory at times, not his deity, because he'll turn right around at other times and display supernatural knowledge. He knows the Samaritan woman's shady past in John 4, 17, 18. How does he know that? He knows that when Peter goes fishing, the first fish that he catches is going to have a coin in his mouth, Matthew 17, 27. He knows without being told that Lazarus is dead. We did this in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 11, verse 11 through 13. And from time to time, he displays supernatural power in miracles of healing, feeding, resurrecting the dead. The impression of Jesus, which the Gospels give, is not that he was somehow gave up his deity or that he couldn't have access to the knowledge and the power, but he drew on it intermediately when he needed it. Sometimes he would he would deny himself the ability to, to, to know the answer to a question, but then he'd turn right around when he needed it. He'd go get it and know everything. He, he just knew the time to do it and the time not to do it. So the impression, in other words, is not so much one of his deity has been reduced, but that his divine, I love this, his divine divine capacities restrained. I can do whatever. I can access that 100% God anytime I want to, but at times I'm going to access the 100% mankind. I'm going to be 100% man and 100% God, 
and I alone will decide which way I go and when I go that way. I'm totally in charge, but I'm both. I didn't give up any deity. Goodbye there, you, you and your little kenosis theory. That's not going to happen. But you know what? My divine capacities are restrained, and sometimes I turn them down, sometimes I turn them up. Jesus, again, completely in control. So he did become poor. Uh, if, if you, this, is in the, this is in page 63. So we see now what it's meant for the Son of God to empty himself and become poor. It meant laying aside of, of his glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. And then finally, a death that involves such agony, spiritual even more than physical, that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. Uh, and you see this in Luke 12, verse 50, the Gethsemane story. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we, ooh, things got a little dicey there. Things get a little dicey there. Here is Jesus, and that 100% God uh, is, is going, knows that it's time to go to the cross, but uh, that 100% man is in agony. You know, they, they, the medical doctors will tell you that you can be under so much agony and so much duress that the capillaries in your forehead really can burst uh, and they really can bleed. And, and we knew this was going on, and we know that the Son of God asked his Father if there was any other way. So you see once again, uh, th this is that battle, and he's, he's vacillating between these two human beings versus, uh, versus God. And, and we look at, uh, at verse 50, and, uh, and, 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 we, and we see that, that uh, he's asking the Father, is there any other way? And when he heard nothing from the Father, he said, not my will, Lord, Father, but your will be done. And that's something, again, that, uh, that he has taught us to do in the same thing. The Gospel of John, I was just looking at that. Remember he said, hey, my time is coming and my heart is troubled. But why am I troubled? This is the whole reason why I came. There it is again. I'm obedient to my Father. Uh, I know that I'm going to raise myself from the dead. I even tell Pilate that no one can take my life from me. But here's that human flesh, and my human flesh is saying, this is about to be an agonizing death, and I'm beginning to ask the Father, is there any other way to do it? And, of course, I, I love how it was presented uh, in, uh, in Luke. If you have your Bible, go to verse 50. Verse 50, I have, a, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. How great is my distress until it is being accomplished. But he did not leave us. He did not leave us. He did finish what he was here to do. So we have to take on the same attitude that Jesus took on for us. Is that no matter what the situation may be, ultimately what we should say following Jesus' example is, not my will be done, Lord, but your will be done. That you have called us to go make disciples. You've called us to be sanctified. And you've called us to difficulty. Uh, those of you that are listening to this live or maybe you're watching it live, um, on January the 19th, that was the day that uh, Sherry and I uh, had our youngest son drown in our, our pool and 
and have to be rushed to the children's hospital emergency room as they would attempt to resuscitate him after he drowned. And um, those of you that know the story, it ties quite beautifully to what we're talking about today uh, because my wife had that very moment uh, where she is praying that our son is going to be resuscitated and the doctors are working on him and they're working on him and there's agony because you, you begin to think to yourself and you may have your own things like this in your life. Father, if your will is this, I don't know that I want to do that. If your will is, is, is this what you're going to be done, Father, I don't know that I want to do that. And, and we begin to ask sometimes, just in this case, is there a way out of this? Couldn't you glorify yourself, Father? Couldn't you glorify yourself by, by my, our son being resuscitated right now? And we could go tell everybody about the miracle of you bringing our son who drowned in the pool. You brought him back to life. It wasn't too late. And we could even talk about we medically they didn't think that could be done, but you did it. And couldn't there be glory in that? Certainly. But as Sherry began to pray, she said that she sensed in her spirit that something else was going to be prayed, that she couldn't pray. And, and that prayer that came out from the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 8, sometimes the Spirit prays what we ought to be praying. She said she could not believe she heard her voice saying, not my will be done, Lord, but your will be done. And who did she learn that from? The God-man. 100% God. Could have walked away from the situation. But, but if he walks away from the situation, then we're doomed. Because he was the only one that could pay the debt that was due in full. That's why he said from the cross, to tell us die. That, 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 they, they documented that when they wrote it in Greek, to tell us die, paid in full. And then Jesus taught us all in our times of agony to say, not our will be done, Lord, but your will be done. No matter what agony that may bring, if it saves the lives of the lost. I can tell you, as I sit here 13 years after the earthly death of our youngest son, is that the only struggle that Sherry and I have ever had? No. Was it the only one we'd ever had before that day? No. Was it, was it shocking? Was it calamity? Yes. Have we faced difficult things and continue to face difficult things in this fallen creation? Yes. Can I see that things were accomplished by God not stepping in and saving the earthly life of our two-and-a-half-year-old son? Oh, yeah. A including the very doctor that was working on him who was lost. Who would go on, I would find out, a few years later, after all the things he watched through my wife, and when I arrived and had a chance to talk to him as well, when he watched what was going on in the lives of disciples of Jesus, and it was only the power of Jesus, because Sherry and I were laid low. There was nothing to happen with that that was anything but God, because we were incapable of doing it ourselves. But see, the God-man knew how it felt to feel like we felt, 
but he also is God, so he can redeem it. He can use it. The very doctor that was hearing all this, we met his parents a few years later, and then she and his parents told us, my son became a Christian after that. He, he realized he was not a Christian. He saw things going on in the death of that little boy and the response of this family and this couple that knew that God was real. He watched it. He saw it. Uh, the memorial service. We didn't even know what YouTube was. We had no idea what YouTube was. I'd never really even heard of it. Bronner was born the year that YouTube was made. And two and a half years later, we uh, had um, a friend working here uh, doing the job that Adler does now, and he decided he would go and get the memorial service and record it for us to have forever. And God began to speak, and God began to move, and, and in those days, you could, you could only put 10 minutes in a video. And he put three 10-minute segments out on something called YouTube, and for that week, it was the number one most viewed video in the world. You think that there haven't been other funerals that have been recorded? Why was that a video that drew people in? Whether you like it or not, it breaks our heart when somebody buries their mom or their grandparent. It is heartbreaking. But if they're 80 years old, and 90 years old, even 70-something years old, you, you, it breaks your heart. But there's nothing that breaks your heart quite like the death of a two-and-a-half-year-old little boy. And somebody's saying, is this his dad? Yeah, it's his dad, which they didn't know. I was supposed to get up and thank everybody and step down and let the pastor speak. But God began to move. I don't recall anything that happened after me greeting everybody and thanking everybody and addressing my family. The rest of it I didn't remember at all. And I remember watching it like eight weeks later sitting in my office, watching it, going, what is this? Over 200 people gave their life to Christ at the service. There are people that text me yesterday that said, it changed my life, God changed me, and I want you to know I've never faded, and I'm, I've never been the same from that day. This beard that I have, I grew it after that because I realized that this, this would be a different Rick Burgess from 2008 on. Am I the Rick Burgess that I need to be? No. Am I the Rick Burgess I was before 2008? No. Is God radically changing me? Yes. Is that process continuing? Yes. The more that I have been refined, because you know why? Because of that pain and suffering and that agony that the God-man completely understood I was so dependent on God that he's so powerful that I finally died. Now, does, does old Rick try to find his way, that flesh keep fighting for its life on this side of heaven? Yes. Do I lose to the flesh as much as I used to? No. Am I perfect? Sadly, no. Am I progressing? Yes not because of a new code of conduct or my newfound self-control, because of the power of the God-man, the power of God coming to me when I could not come to him and then giving me access to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, not just to know about them, but to know them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. 
thank you for, I can, man, I can sense your spirit moving. Lord, I know there's people whose hearts have been pierced by us digging in to God incarnate and what you did for us. You know, once once you figure this out, these other things you did are not hard to believe at all. Thank you for defeating our sin, Lord. Thank you for defeating death. Thank you for the promise that you are making all things new. And Lord, thank you for, for coming and taking on flesh to understand what it's like to be us, but at the same, th- same time showing us an example as the new Adam. And this example is perfection and redemption and that you can make us all fully righteous. Not partially righteous, fully righteous. If you're watching this or listening to this, would you like right now to give your life to Jesus and say, I understand now what you did, and I would like for you to forgive me, Lord. I want that gift that you provided for me. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm turning from my sin, and I'm turning to you, Lord Jesus. Will you please save me? I know that you love me. I I hear this story. Will you teach me to love you? Lord, I want to know you but I can't know you until I've been redeemed. And today I want you to redeem me. I repent of my sins and I confess you as my now, my Lord, I belong to you. I believe that your Father rose you from the dead on the third day. And I publicly proclaim that I'm now a follower of you, Jesus. Just change me. I can't change me, but you can. Teach me, Lord, to become more like you. But today is the step that I take because I understand what you did for me. And I'm, and I'm grateful and I turn from my sin and I turn to you and ask you to forgive me and save me. If you've done that for the first time or maybe the first time that you ever meant it, the Bible tells us the sincerity of your heart and the power of Jesus has saved you. The Bible study didn't save you. The prayer didn't save you but the sincerity of your heart and your repentance and the power of Jesus saved you. If I can help you now to be a follower of Jesus and take that next step or anything that's on your mind after today, you can reach me, Rick, at rickandbubba.com. I'm honored that you would take the time to be with us and may God be glorified because I promise you, no matter what we're going through, God reigns. Thanks for being with us.